Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 20, Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18. Now last week we concluded Numbers 15 by studying at some length God's uh, remedy for this tendency of his people Israel to ignore his laws and commands. And this casual approach that many in Israel had taken towards the the newly given laws of Moses was epitomized um, in the story of that man who gathered sticks for a fire on the Sabbath. And the tragic result was that that man was executed for this offense against the Lord's command not to make a fire or to work on a Sabbath. And it's clear from this incident that the man had actually not started a fire. He'd just gathered the wood for it. Therefore, this story equally highlighted the principles that disobedience to God can bring death. And that the intent, even if the intended action is never fully realized, plays perhaps the primary role in God determining the severity of a sin and therefore what kind of consequences attached to it. And the remedy that God commanded was an interesting one. In essence, it was a memory device. A visible reminder to every Israelite that God is serious about his laws and that the consequences for disobedience could be severe. Tzitzit, what the English translations usually call fringe, was to be that memory device. Every male Israelite was to wear a tzitzit, a tassel made of white linens that were wrapped around a single blue thread. And then it was to be worn on the corners of one's garment. Now, though the scriptures don't specifically address the issue of women in this matter, it was apparently considered optional and allowable for women to attach tzitzit to their garments. Now, the desired effect of the tzitzit upon the people really wasn't at all supernatural, the tzitzit carried no power. It really held no place in ritual. Rather, they played upon the most powerful of the human senses, sight, okay, to achieve the goal of reminding the Israelites of the Torah commandments so that they wouldn't risk offending God and then having to suffer divine or civil punishments or both. But the tzitzit were also a sign. They were a visible sign of holiness. Even more specifically, they symbolized a measure of nobility, a measure even of priestly service that every Israelite was both honored to have and expected to maintain. The key to understanding tzitzit is that they were an exception to the prohibition against common Israelites wearing clothing made of two different kinds of material. The law was that one could wear all wool or all linen, but you couldn't mix them into a single cloth. However, since the tribe of Levi had been separated away from Israel and assigned a special duty 
as God's designated servants and priests, the high priest and the ordinary priests had a couple of items of clothing that were actually made from this mixing of wool and linen. And this mixing of materials is in Hebrew called shanets. Shanets. Now the tzitzit was the only item that the common Israelites were permitted to wear that was shanets, mixed. And it was the only item of its kind that could be worn outside of the tabernacle grounds. The reason for this law is that any holy item can only be used when it's in the precinct of the temple, or in Moses' day, the wilderness tabernacle. Sacred items of any kind had to remain there within the courtyard of the tabernacle, later the temple, because that was the only holy ground. If any item was taken or worn outside of the holy precinct, then that item would become defiled. But the reverse was also true. and had to be equally guarded against. Any common item that was offered to God or used in service to God became holy. And this presented its own set of problems and consequences. Now, as we move into the next chapters of Numbers, we're going to find several of these principles that we found in Numbers 15 brought into play. Numbers 16, 17, and 18 that we're going to begin today are but one unit. They are really but one long story that Christian scholars long ago divided up into more bite-sized chunks that we call chapters. This story gets much too broken up, in my view, though, if we read it by reading first the first chapter of the unit, then the next, and then finally the third. So we're going to take the unusual approach this evening of reading all three chapters of this in succession without stopping for comment or study. Okay. Then after I've read them all, we'll go back and begin to dissect everything that occurs in these verses. Now before we begin, though, let me give you a little bit of an introduction as to what these chapters are about, so it'll help you know what to look for. Essentially, this is all about the indispensable nature and purpose of the priesthood and the uncompromising place that the priesthood is intended to hold in Israel's national life. And that special place of superior holiness that the tribe of Levi possesses, with the subgroup within Levi called the priesthood, at that pinnacle of the holiness hierarchy. And this is going to be demonstrated by means of law, and by means of telling the story of a rebellion against the God-ordained holiness hierarchy. When God first gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, you know, they were just 
idealistic theories to the people of Israel. Not only were those laws mostly a long list of do's and don'ts, rituals, observances, crimes, punishments that were set down for Israel to obey, but they neither understood how these might completely apply to everyday life, nor in many cases why they had to do or not do these things in the first place. Why these laws? Further, a major portion of them, of these laws, couldn't even be observed without Israel actually being in the promised land. In fact, some of the laws were even prefaced with the words, after you enter the land, then the law would apply. Now, what possible useful purpose could some of these strange regulations, at least they were strange to typical Middle Eastern society, possibly serve? So many of these commands and ordinances seemed arbitrary and capricious and very hard to stick to. It's kind of like when we were teenagers preparing for our first driver's license test. We had to read this, I don't know about you, but I did. I had to read this annoying little book that was all about traffic laws. And I had to retain it at least long enough to pass that darn test. Alright, so I could get my license and be able to participate in that American rite of passage into adulthood driving a car. But the purpose of these traffic laws was often a mystery to us. In fact, many of them seemed pretty ridiculous. So we really had no plan of obeying them anyway when we finally got our licenses and and actually started driving without good old mom or dad sitting next to us. For most of us, it took a series of tickets, fender benders, insurance rate hikes, before we finally got the message that those laws were not theory. They were real. And the consequences for violating them, whether we thought they were stupid or wise, could range from irritating to awfully severe. In other words, principles have to be put into practice so that they can move from theory to reality. If the law had been given to Israel and they just sat there, ensconced at the foot of Mount Sinai, if they had just gone out and gathered the manna provided, God provided for them every day, looked up each morning at that majestic mountaintop upon which the law was given, and they raised their flocks and herds and peace and quiet at the foot of that mountain, the law would just have remained theory to them. They needed to move on. They needed to experience life. They needed to deal with the law in everyday circumstances, face difficulties, face challenges, endure hardships. They had to stumble and fall. And they had to make difficult and less than clear-cut choices in order for the wisdom and purpose of these divine principles to actually become real to them. And for the Israelites to learn how to apply them so that God's commands became a settled matter in their hearts and in their minds. 
It's the same way for our Christian walk with the Lord. It's a journey, not a sit. If we accept Yeshua and then never move forward, never accept risks or take paths that look a bit fearful, if we just stay in a place of nothing but warmth and provision and comfort, then most of what Messiah wants us to know is just going to remain theory. Nice thought. It's going to remain just a warm and fuzzy feeling for us. It's only when we step out and move forward, putting into practice those godly principles, that they become real to us and we begin to see their purpose and their perfection. It's our experiences that solidify our trust and affirm our faith. The story we're about to read in Numbers begins with another in a series of rebellions by the people of Israel against God. Oh, let me tell you, they don't see it as rebellion against God. They see it as rising up against mere men, Aaron and Moses. And what a mistake that perception was, as they'd soon find out. And as we read this story, keep in mind that Moses is God's mediator between mankind and himself. Think of it this way. Moses is the Old Testament equivalent of Yeshua the Messiah. Now, of course, that analogy can only be carried so far. But their primary common trait is that both Moses and Yeshua were God's appointed mediators. They held a special status that no other men have held or will ever hold. And just as so many tolerant people in our day speak of respect for Jesus, but not belief in his special role as mediator and savior, So the Israelites of Moses' day generally had respect for Moses as a human leader, but most of them still didn't grasp his supreme and unapproachable status as the divinely ordained mediator. Failure to understand that superior position that Moses held was going to cost many an Israelite their life. Let's move on now and read Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18 all together. It's going to be starting in page 167 in your complete Jewish Bibles. Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Esar, the son of Chat, the son of Levi, along with Ditan and Afiram, the sons of Eliaf and On, the son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben, took men, and they rebelled against Moses. And siding with them were 250 men of Israel, leaders of the community, key members of the council, men of reputation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, You take too much for yourselves. After all, the entire community is holy. Every one of them. And Adonai is among them. So why do you lift yourselves up above Adonai's assembly? And when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. 
And he said to Korah and his whole group, In the morning, Adonai will show who are his and who is the holy person he will allow to approach him. Yes, he will bring whomever he chooses near to himself. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all your group. Put fire in them. Put incense in them before Adonai tomorrow. The one whom Adonai chooses will be the one who is holy. It is you, you sons of Levi, who are taking far too much on yourselves. Then Moses said to Korah, Listen here, you sons of Levi. Is it for you a mere trifle that the Lord God of Israel has separated you from the community of Israel to bring you close to himself so that you can do the work in the tabernacle of Adonai and stand before the community serving them? He has brought you close, all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. Now you want the office of priest too? That's why you and your group have gathered together against Adonai after all. What is Aaron that you should complain against him? Then Moses went to summon Natan and Aviram, the sons of Eliaph. But they replied, we won't come up. Is it such a mere trifle bringing us up from a land that was flowing with milk and honey just to kill us in the desert? That now you arrogate to yourself the role of dictator over us? You haven't at all brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, and you haven't put us in possession of fields and vineyards. Do you think you can gouge out these men's eyes and just blind them? We won't. Come up. Moses was very angry. And he said to Adonai, Don't accept their grain offering. I haven't taken one donkey from them. I've done nothing wrong to any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and your group, be there before Adonai tomorrow. You, they, and Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan, put incense in it. Every one of you bring before Adonai his fire pan. 250 fire pans. You too, and Aaron. Each one his own fire pan. Each man took his fire pan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the entrance to the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Korah assembled all the group who were against them at the entrance to that tent of meeting. Then all the glory of Adonai appeared to the whole assembly. And Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly. I'm going to destroy them right now. And they fell on their faces and said, Oh God, God of the spirits of all humankind, if one person sins, are you going to be angry with the entire assembly? And Adonai answered Moses, Tell the assembly to move away from the homes of Korah, Datan, and Avaram. Moses got up and went to Datan and Avaram, and the leaders of Israel followed him. There he said to the assembly, Leave the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything that belongs to them or you may be swept away in all of their sins. So they moved away from all the area where Korah, Datan, and Avaram lived. Then Datan and Avaram came out, stood at the entrance to their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses says, 
Here's how you will know that Adonai has sent me to do all these things. That I haven't done them out of my own ambition. If these men die a natural death, like other people, only sharing the fate common to all humanity, then Adonai has not sent me. But if Adonai does something new, if the ground opens up and swallows them with everything they own and they go down alive to Sheol, then you'll understand that these men have had contempt for Adonai. The moment he finished speaking, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all their households. All the people who had sided with Korah, everything they owned. So they and everything they owned went alive down into Sheol. Then the earth closed over them and their existence in the community ceased. All Israel around them fled at their shrieks, shouting, The earth might swallow us too. Then fire came out from Adonai and destroyed the 250 men who had offered the incense. Chapter 17. Adonai said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to remove the firepans from the fire and to scatter the smoldering coals at a distance because they have become holy. Also the firepans of these men, whose sin cost them their lives, have become holy because they were offered before Adonai. Therefore have them hammered into plates to cover over the altar. This will be a sign for the people of Israel. Eleazar the Cohen took the brass firepans which the men who had been burned to death had offered and they hammered them into a covering for the altar to remind the people of Israel that an ordinary person not descended from Aaron is not to approach and burn incense before Adonai if he wants to avoid the fate of Korah and his group as Adonai had said to him through Moses but the very next day the whole community of the people of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. You have killed Adonai's people. However, as the community was assembling against Moses and Aaron, they looked in the direction of the tent of meeting and they saw the cloud cover it and the glory of Adonai appear. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And Adonai said to Moses, get away from this assembly. I'm going to destroy them at once. But they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your fire pan, put fire from the altar in it, lay incense on it, hurry with it to the assembly to make atonement for them. Because anger has gone out from Adonai and the plague has already begun. Aaron took it, as Moses had said, and he ran into the middle of the assembly. And there the plague had already begun among the people. But he added the incense and he made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Those dying from the plague numbered 14,700. Besides those who died in the Korah incident. Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting and the plague was stopped. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and take from them staffs 
one for each of the ancestral tribes from each of the leader a tribe of a tribe, twelve staffs. And I want you to write each man's name on his staff. And write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for each tribe's leader is to have but one staff. Put them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony, where I will meet with you. The staff of the man I am going to choose will sprout buds. And in this way, I will put a stop to the complaints of the people of Israel they keep making against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their leaders gave him staffs, one for each leader, according to their ancestral tribes, twelve staffs. Aaron's staff was among their staffs. Moses put the staffs before Adonai in the tent of the testimony. The next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and there he saw that Aaron's staff for the house of Levi had budded. It had sprouted not only buds, but flowers and ripe almonds as well. Moses brought out all the staffs from before Adonai to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took back his staff. Adonai said to Moses, Return Aaron's staff to its place in front of the testimony. It's to be kept there as a sign to the rebels, so that they will stop grumbling against me and thus not die. Moses did this. He did as Adonai had ordered him. But the people of Israel said to Moses, Oh no, we're dead men, lost, we're all lost. Whenever anyone approaches the tabernacle of Adonai, he dies. Will we all perish? Chapter 18. Adonai said to Aharon, You, your sons, and your father's family line will be responsible for anything that goes wrong in this sanctuary. You and your sons with you will be responsible for anything wrong in your service as priests. But you are to bring your kinsmen, the tribe of Levi, along with yourselves to work together with you and help you, you and your sons with you, when you are there before the tent of meeting. They are not there to be at your disposal and perform all kinds of tasks related to the tent only. They are not to come near the holy, holy furnishings of the altar, so that they, so that neither they nor you will die. They will work together with you in your duties related to the tent of meeting, whatever the service in the tent may be. But an unauthorized person is not to come near you. You will take charge of all the holy things and the altar so that there will no longer be anger against the people of Israel. I myself have taken your kinsmen, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They have been given as a gift to Adonai for you, so that you can perform the service in the tent of meeting. You and your sons with you will exercise your prerogatives and duties as Kohanim, priests in regard to everything having to do with the altar and within the curtain. I entrust the service required of the Kohanim to you. The unauthorized person who tries to perform it is to be put to death. And Adonai said to Aaron, I myself have put you in charge of the contributions given to me. Everything consecrated by the people of Israel I have given and set aside for you and your sons. This is a perpetual law. Here is what is to be yours of the especially holy things taken from the fire. 
every offering they make, that is, every grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering of theirs that they turn over to me, will be especially holy for you and your sons. You are to eat it in an especially holy place. Every male may eat it. It will be set apart for you. Also, yours is the contribution the people of Israel give in the form of wave offerings. I have given these to you, your sons and your daughters with you. This is a perpetual law. Everyone in your family who is clean may eat it. All the best of the olive oil, wine, and grain, the first portion of what they give to Adonai, I have given it to you. The first produce to turn ripe of all that is in their land, which they bring to Adonai, is to be yours. Every clean person in your family may eat it. Everything in Israel which has been consecrated unconditionally, is to be yours. Everything that comes first out of the womb, of all living things which they offer to Adonai, whether human or animal, will be yours. However, the firstborn of a human being you must redeem. And the firstborn of an unclean beast you are to redeem. The sum to be paid for redeeming anyone a month old or over is to be five shekels of silver, as you value it, using the sanctuary shekel. But the firstborn of an ox, sheep, or goat you are not to redeem. They are holy. You are to splash their blood against the altar and make their fat go up in smoke as an offering made by fire, as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Their meat will be yours. Like the breast that is waved in the right thigh, they will be yours. All the contributions of holy things which the people of Israel offer to Adonai, I have given to you, your sons and your daughters with you. This is a perpetual law. It's an eternal covenant of salt before Adonai for you and for your descendants with you. Adonai said to Aaron, You are not to have any inheritance or portion in their land. I am your portion and inheritance among the people of Israel. To the descendants of Levi, I have given the entire tenth of the produce collected in Israel. It is their inheritance and payment for the service they render in the tent of meeting. From now on, the people of Israel are not to approach the tent of meeting so that they will not bear the consequences of their sin and die. Only the Levites are to perform the service in the tent of meeting, and they will be responsible for whatever they do wrong. This is to be a permanent regulation through all your generations. They are to have no inheritance among the people of Israel, because I have given to the Levites as their inheritance the tenths of the produce which the people of Israel set aside as a gift for Adonai. This is why I have said to them, that they are to have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And Adonai said to Moses, Tell the Levites, When you take from the people of Israel the tenth of the produce which I have given to you from them as your inheritance, you are to set aside from it a gift for Adonai, a tenth of the tenth. The gift you set aside will be accounted to you as it were, grain from the threshing floor, grape juice from the wine vat. In this way, you will set aside a gift for Adonai from all your tents 
that you receive from the people of Israel. And from these tents you are to give to Aaron the priest the gift set aside for Adonai. From everything given to you, you are to set aside all that is due Adonai, the best part of it, its holy portion. Therefore you are to tell them, when you set aside from it its best part, it will be counted accounted to the Levites as if it were grain from the threshing floor and grape juice from the wine vat. You may eat it anywhere, you and your households, because that it is your payment in return for your service in the tent of meeting. Moreover, because you will have set aside from it its best parts, you will not be committing any sin because of it. For you are not to profane the holy things of the people of Israel. Or you will die. As we begin chapter 16, we have a people, Israel, who have been demoralized by the report of the ten scouts, rebelling out of fear. And consequently, Jehovah punishes the people by turning them back into the wilderness. And many of them still remain disillusioned and unhappy, to say the least. Even more, there has been a God-ordered division of duties and also a status change. There's been a setting up of rank and order within Israel that elevated some folks, but it lowered others. The situation is tense. It's beginning to spin out of control. And those men who are supposed to be the leaders, supposed to be helpers to Moses, now become anti-leaders. And they foment rebellion. As we've all been witness of, if not party to, people on the edge of panic or despair, we know they are easily swayed by men anxious to use those fears to bring about their personal agendas and their hidden desires for power. And into this growing chaos steps Korah, Datan, and Abiram. And their goal is to assume control of the power center of Israel, the priesthood. This is a rather interesting mixture of allies we see here. Korah is a Levite from the line of Kohat. On the other hand, Datan and Avaram are from the tribe of Reuben. So how does this unlikely brain trust get together? They're camped together on the south side of uh, the Israelite encampment. They live right next to one another, and their lives were mingled. Certainly the Levites lived on the more inner and therefore holier ring of tribes and clans that surrounded and protected the tabernacle. But the close proximity obviously brought these two groups into constant contact with one another. Yet these weren't the only ones who were involved in a coup attempt. We're told in verse 2 that 250 other men of Israel... Leaders from various other tribes 
sided with Korah, Datana, and Abiram. And it's clear from the account, though, that it's the Levite Korah who's the chief in, instigator of all of this. Now, in a short while, we're going to see that Datan and Abiram, Reubenites, had a little bit different agenda than Korah. But at the moment, they're united in their accusations against Moses and Aaron, who are generally seen as a team. After all, they are brothers. And their accusation is that Moses and Aaron have taken too much power for themselves and set down too many rules that put they and their families over everybody else. They also assert that Moses and Aaron were self-appointed. But it goes even further. And what they next claim is a direct result of what we just read about at the end of chapter 15. And what did we end chapter 15 with? Tzitzit. Okay. By now, you see, all or most of Israel was wearing tzitzit. And for some, it seemed to go to their heads. They apparently grasped, though in a kind of a twisted way, that the wearing of tzitzit brought them a measure of nobility and a priestly status. And now they wanted to cash in on it. So they say to Moses, Hey, Moses, all the community is holy now. Not just you and Aaron. They deduced, for self-serving reasons, of course, that by putting on those tzitzit, they were now of an equal status with the priesthood and with Moses. Wrong. Now we begin to see why that Levite, Korah, was the one leading the charge. As a Levite from the clan of Kohat, Korah wasn't eligible to be a priest. Priests carried the most authority, the most weight. They had a higher status. Korah was jealous of that. None of his clan, none of Korah's clan, were eligible to be priests. Now let me remind you that just as the entire tribe of Levi was divided and separated away from Israel, so was the tribe of Levi divided and separated into two groups. The priests, who come only from what line? Aaron. Only from Aaron. And the remaining Levites, who work for the priests. Those remaining Levites, of which Korah was one, did such things as being guards, musicians, transporters of the tabernacle when it moved. Maintenance workers, they were, of the tabernacle grounds. But never could they perform rituals, or could they ever wear the priestly garb, or could they ever enter the sanctuary tent. Because all of those activities displaying a higher status wasn't for them. Regular Levites could not enjoy that higher status. So from Numbers forward, when we get this repeated phrase, Levites and priests, Levites and priests, it's not the same way of saying, it's, it's not two ways of saying the same thing. 
it is speaking of two different groups with two different status levels. The priests and the Levites. Therefore, they had different gradients of holiness that they had been assigned by God. So Moses instantly, to deal with all this, devises a test as a means to demonstrate the superior holy status of the priesthood versus the inferior holy status, if you would, of the remaining Levites and the still lower holy status of common Israelites, even with that newly authorized wearing of tzitzit. And the test is that each man is to bring fire pans, censers, filled with burning coals and with incense, and they're to be presented to the Lord at the door of the sanctuary. Moses includes a warning in this by telling Korah and his henchmen that it's not Moses and Aaron who've overreached their authority. It's those who have stepped forward to challenge the very men that Jehovah has installed as the leaders of Israel. And the way the test works is that God will permit access, presumably inside of the, to the holy place, the front room of the tent, to all those who brings incense that he will accept. In other words, Korah wants he and his men to be the priests, and the chief indication of a priest is that he gains access to God by means of being able to go into the holy tent. Now, it's already been made clear in the law that only priests may present incense to the Lord, and anyone else who attempts to do that is doing so at their own risk. In verse 9, Moses tries to remind Korah and those Levites who are following him that God has already given them a great honor in being chosen and separated from Israel as his own servants, and that their service to the priests is the same as service to God. And those Levites, even those assigned the lowliest tasks, are still a step above in holiness and privilege from any of the members of the other Israelite tribes. Then in verse 12, the story takes a dramatic turn. Moses sends for Korah's partners in crime, Datan and Aviram, members of the tribe of Reuben, and of course, they're defiant. And here we see that they have a bone to pick that's more with Moses than with Aaron. Korah wanted the priesthood, so he was after Aaron's job as the high priest. Datan and Avaram were after Moses' job. Recall that Datan and Avaram's tribal founder, Reuben, was the rightful firstborn of Jacob. And by custom, he should have been handed the leadership of Israel upon Jacob's death. And then in one of the most blasphemous responses that illustrates just far how out of touch these people were with God and his plans for Israel, they say to Moses, you know what, it's not Canaan that's the land flowing with milk and honey, it's back there in Egypt. Oh my goodness. And that, the only reason Moses even brought them out of Egypt was so he could lord over them. 
which is something they say you couldn't have done back in Egypt. Then it's all finished off with an idiom of that day where it says you gouge out the eyes of the people. This idiom corresponds to our modern pull the wool over your eyes. Okay? That is, they're accusing Moses of deceiving the people about the better prospect of a about the prospect of a better life and a promised homeland in Canaan. And Christianity, it's often said that the one unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And there has been a heated debate for centuries over just what blaspheming the Holy Spirit amounts to. Okay, I'm not sure I can even tell you. However, I do believe that in this rebellion, we've just been given a pattern for it. If not an outright example of what an unforgivable sin looks like in action. Okay, See, here's what's occurred. The Lord has already redeemed Israel. You with me on that? Israel's redeemed. It's over. It's done. The deed is done. Israel no longer is in the hand of the enemy. Egypt is now safely in God's tender hands and is being led by his appointed mediator, Moses, towards that promised land. These rebellious leaders in Israel say that they wish to give back their redemption and turn around and go back into the hands of the enemy. I think you see where I'm going with this. Okay, As believers, when we accept our redemption, several New Testament pack, uh, passages make it quite clear that we can, with our own will, give it back. Not accidentally. Not by committing some unknown sin. Not ever by having it taken from us by a man or a demon. But by deciding in our minds and in our hearts that we desire what the enemy can and has in the past provided us with more than what our Savior and God has provided us with. Now, while this may not be the sum total, I grant you, of all that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, it's at least a pretty good example, I think. Look, we'll close with this tonight. You know, Satan is always tempting us and then accusing us to God when we fall to those temptations. But his goal isn't to just be a thorn in our sides. His goal isn't to tempt us to merely have us failing and then reconciling with God over and over again, driving us crazy. His goal, real goal is to get us back. That's his goal. His end game is to get us to make the decision to give up our allegiance to God and to go back to subservience to the enemy who had us until we made that decision to accept our redemption. And that is because in the same way that by our own will we came to Yeshua, by that same will we have to surrender it. That ought to make us shudder when we think about what it is we do when we, even in the secret places of our hearts, which God knows, at times long to go back to the ways of the world. To go back and touch 
It's pleasures and comforts that we were used to before we were saved. Or almost as bad to mix the ways of the world that we had so enjoyed with the new ways of the kingdom of God that we've been shown. See, Korah rejected his redemption. Korah rejected the priesthood that God had established, which was the only means to atonement. There wasn't a plan B. Therefore, Korah also rejected God's method of atonement for his sins. Datan and Aviram also rejected their redemption. Several dozen others rejected theirs right along with them. We're about to find out in this story just what rejection of our redemption buys us. But before we close for this week, allow me to point out one thing. Notice that Datan and Aviram, again, were of the tribe of Reuben. Reuben was the natural firstborn of Israel. He should have been the leader, but he was passed over. You see, a couple of hundred years earlier, Jacob had rejected Reuben, bypassed him, and given the firstborn rights to Judah and to Joseph. He split that firstborn blessing between Judah and Joseph. Why? Because Reuben had slept with Jacob's concubine. These descendants of Reuben, Datan and Aviram, after all this time, still hadn't accepted God's will about this matter. Given through Jacob that they would not lead Israel. Over two centuries of bitterness was boiling over here. The problem for Korah, Datan, and Abiram is that God took this personally. And you know, nothing good ever happens when that's the case. I can promise you that. Okay, we'll see you next time.